All right. We just had Daniel Grothy with us, and this is a great conversation. Daniel and I go way back. Our parents worked together in Tulsa, Oklahoma to establish uh, Victory Christian Center. And uh, man, it was uh, the highlight of our childhood. He's a little younger than I am. Yeah. But man, it was it was good catching up with Daniel. Yeah, it was fun watching you guys reminisce and uh, some fun stories. And uh, he's a deep well, man. Pastor, pastors, uh, what is the church? New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Uh, Ted Haggard's old church. Yeah. Now pastor by Brady Boyd. And he talks about the struggles that they went through in that. Yeah, he tells that story. Downfall of the pastor and then uh, and then a uh, shooting at the church that killed two, two teenage girls and uh, a suicide by a, a random shooter. I mean, they've been through the ringer up there. And, uh, and Daniel, Daniel's been through it all with them, with the heart of a shepherd and somebody who loves Jesus and represents him really well. Yeah, and has a, a, a heart for the body of Christ and really has an understanding of generational Christianity, of, of, of family being the long game. We kind of dive into that. And that's my way of describing it. But he's written an entire book that dives into the, the power of place. He is talking about the importance of putting roots down in an actual place, in a location, but it's uh, it's also about putting roots down in the context of family, in the context of relationship. And talked about his time there at the church through that season and how that introduced him to Eugene Peterson. So we hear that story too, man. It, this was just a really cool conversation. Yeah, I think this is the closest to Bono we've ever been. <laughs> Both Bono and Daniel Grothy have spent significant time with with Eugene Peterson. And so that that was pretty cool. That is cool. You know, he also brings other people into it, like Wendell Berry. And uh, just, just to talk about a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a, a Peterson yeah. quote. I think it's actually a book. You know, there's something to be said about stability and longevity yeah. and faithfulness yeah. uh, while not betraying the nature and character of Jesus that represents who God really, really is. Yeah, I love that he, he loves the church, but he's he's definitely wanting the church to look like Jesus. I appreciated his pastoral heart and diving into what that actually is. One of the things we talked about was that we're all shepherds and we're all sheep. And uh, there's such a humility in that thought and such a humility in that way of, of leading. And, uh, yeah. Daniel's a musician uh, as well. He's an amazing drummer. Yeah. I think he said he's he's played on over 50 different, you know, albums, recordings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was a part of Michael Gunger's band. Yeah. Also the brilliance. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of great stories in that area as well. It was a good conversation. I, I really think this is going to encourage folks and uh, man, it's this is fun. I'm enjoying the season three so far. It's been rich. Good times. And Jason, you, you got a little emotional in this interview and I appreciate it. I appreciate you being raw and emotional. And uh, uh, it, I think it means a lot to, to our audience. It certainly means a lot to me that 
you're real and authentic in the way that you uh, thanks man you ask questions and you dive deep when folks talk about this podcast and they thank me for it my first response is always man this has been this has been enriching for me I mean this has been encouraging for me uh, the conversations we get to have some of these conversations uh, I've been I've been aching to have for 20 years you know uh, and to have them with such such amazing people and such humble people and yeah. and uh, be able to do it uh, so freely I, I feel the same about you man the privilege it is and the honor it is to to have these conversations with you on a regular basis and, it is and then with some amazing people along the way so yeah, this is, this is a good one. And it, it touches near to my heart because it, it's about family and it's about the church and it's about where we've gotten it right, where we need to do better, where we've gotten it wrong. And so it touches close to home, you know? Well, I enjoy rethinking God with you and uh, and with Daniel Grothy. It's been good. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, guys, uh, like, share, subscribe, all of that fun stuff. And God bless you. Enjoy this podcast. Uh, no, 1996, and then moved out here in 2003. Man. So that's the short version. <laughs> you missed the best part, and then you met us. Yes, <laughs> met the Clarks. Well, we've known the Clarks like almost since we've been out here and uh, and reconnected to do the podcast. And yeah, You've been here 18 years, right? Yeah. 19, yeah. Always been kind of like pals and buds, but this podcast has definitely brought us a lot closer and yeah. I think we're both kind of like we were on journeys that led us to this place of common ground. I think uh, I think God's good about that. Yeah. The Irish call it cumbrogi, like a companionship of the heart. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You have to stay in one place, though, right? Long enough for that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> Way to go, Jason. Segway. Way to bring it home, brother. That's a say. Well, I've been reading into you. Learning, I've been learning. Derek's told me there it is. Let's just go ahead and get this out there. <laughs> Daniel, seriously, excellent, excellent book, man. Absolutely love it. Thank you, bro. Yeah. I appreciate that so much. Um, really, really well done and uh, excited to talk to you about it today. So Jason, Daniel, and I have fathers who helped found Victory Christian Center yep. from its early humble beginnings of Sheridan Assembly. Yep. And uh, and that's that's kind of where we, we grew up. Daniel's quite a bit younger than me, but I think you were, you were probably closer to my little brother, Kyle. Kyle and I won a state championship together at Victory. He's a year older than me. And so we played okay. a bunch of basketball together. And I spent the night over at your parents' place with Kyle in high school probably once a week and stole all of Kyle's clothes because his closet was much uh, much more sophisticated than mine. And so, <laughs> yeah, great memories. That was probably from his uh, his older brother, Scott, that used to steal tons of clothes from Dillard's. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> We had like every flavor of polo button down and pullover, like I mean, full figure. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll just leave that in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you wrote a book called "The Power of Place: Choosing Stability in a Ruthless Age." I'm gonna hold it up right here because I love it. I love the cover. Tell me about this cover. Yeah. So as I was dreaming this up, I I. I sat down and wrote a one page uh, write up to my designer who I'd never met. And I said, you know, the title, you've got the manuscript, but here's what's in my heart. So I, 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 I was thinking about lines on a map. 
I was thinking about roots underneath the, the soil, the roots of a tree. My wife said it reminds her of veins in, in the body carrying the blood throughout the body. And right out of the center of the of, the, you know, the, the, the middle of it shoots out from the preposition of, which I have a section in the book where uh, I say the saints are always from somewhere. And if you want to live a meaningful life, you have to submit yourself to the smallest of all prepositions, which is of. That's awesome. You have to become a person of a place. And so all the saints, you've got St. Francis of Assisi, you've got St. Hildegard of Bingen, you've got uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, you've got Teresa of Calcutta, and they got that from Jesus of Nazareth. That's good. And God doesn't come and sprinkle salvation from the balcony of heaven and stay at a distance. God does not work from the outside. God moves in and comes from the inside. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when, when, when you look at the cover, hopefully some of that will fire in your imagination. Yeah, 100%. You know, it, it also reminds me of the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Japanese art of Kitsuki. Yes, exactly. Uh, where they would, uh, a broken piece of pottery would be repaired with veins of gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know, for some reason, I saw that as well in the cover. So, man, you're just hitting all the cylinders here with this book, man. <laughs> hitting it all. I love the uh, I love the concept of the power of place and the early church leaders, including their, their city names. You know, I mean, for us today, this would be uh, Daniel of Colorado Springs and Jason of Cornelius and Derek of Charlotte. And here we are together. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about the power of place, one of the one of the things that I wanted to start with here is just the benefits of being rooted. Yeah, uh, one of your you know chapter headings there, and you kind of give these these three principles that when things are working rightly, place provides security, place nourishes identity, and um, place affords us the opportunity to exercise skilled mastery. Could you kind of dive into that a little bit? Because I think those three principles are so key to this book. Yeah. Long before Abraham Maslow wrote up his hierarchy of needs in the early 1940s, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, theologians have been commenting on the importance of place for uh, launching well into life. If you, you know, if kids that start in a rough spot, you have to you have to unlearn that muscle memory. I've, I was just talking yesterday with a friend who was born in South Sudan. His dad was one of the lost boys. And his dad watched his entire community get killed. And this little group of boys, 8, 10, 12 years old, run across the border, somehow find themselves into uh, Egypt. And they get over there and are granted asylum. And my friend is telling me he lived he, himself. He was by himself in Sudan from four to eight years old. And then from eight to 11, he was in a refugee camp in Egypt. Wow! And he said, Daniel, I've spent my whole life working to undo what was done in those early precognitive. I didn't do this to myself, but I've had to work myself out of it. So place at the very elemental level gives us this, wait, the world can be safe. The world can be decent. The the mother nursing her child at her breast and the child, they say that the child can see the distance from the mom's breast up to the mom's eyes. The intimacy of 
being in wound in yeah. place yeah. and and nurtured and taken care of by your most important people. So I think in the first decade of life, one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is just the stability of the world is congenial. You don't have to live threatened. There's food in the pantry. And that's why our heart breaks. And that's why we support widows and orphans. And we because we've got to help rally for the people who don't have the gift of place. So when place is working rightly, the first thing it provides is security. When place is working rightly, it provides us an identity. Uh, I grew up, Derek, at Victory with your parents, with my parents, with the Darties, with, uh, I mean, I could go down the list, the Newmans, the, the Taylors, so many different people who marked my life and they, they named me. Yeah. Your parents, I, in my first book, Derek, I, I wrote toward the end, developing a theology of the laying on of hands. And I said, Mark and Linda Turner laid hands on me and they did my whole life. They spoke life into me. They, they told me what they saw when I was, when I was wandering, they would jerk the slack out and they would go, man of God, rise up. You're better than that. I know who you are. I know where you come from. And they, they gave me an identity with the people of God and identity doesn't come to us in abstraction. It comes to us in our particular locations. Mm. And so Tulsa helped me think about and care about and learn about things that I would not have cared about had I grown up in Boston. So no one place can be everything for you, but your particular place will mark you and call things out of you and get you ready for the world in a really specific way. The third thing, place provides the, the chance to practice skilled mastery. Uh, Ellen Davis, the great Old Testament theologian who lives in North Carolina, she, she's been at Duke um, 75 years old, brilliant, and I, I've interviewed her several times. And she translates the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, 26, 1, 27, take dominion. She translates it, exercise skilled mastery. Dominion has this, you know, in our world of domination, it, it has that connotation of, oh, the earth is, you know, we do whatever we want. This is our place and everyone else is paying rent and, and we beat the thing up. No, she says, no, to be God's image bearers means you find yourself in the garden that you're in and you study it and you pay attention and you discern what it needs from you. And then you begin to exercise skilled mastery within it. So I pastor in a way in Colorado Springs in a way that I wouldn't have pastored in Tulsa. And in a way that if I, if I moved from here to Chicagoland, I would have to become a different kind of pastor for a different kind of context. So where you are will demand a certain kind of response uh, from you. Man, that's so good. You're bringing back all kinds of memories. I mean, your mom and dad had huge influence on my life as well. Your mom was the basically the principal of our, our school when I was there. So uh, I'm sure there's many times she wanted to lay hands on me as well, um, maybe in a different way. <laughs> and then, look, I got to tell you this one little story. I mean, your dad, I think it was my freshman year in college, and I was at Oral Roberts University, and my parents were out of town. And uh, I, I hosted a, a party at my house. This is when, before my parents moved away from Tulsa and left me alone in Tulsa to fend for myself. Uh, and, uh, and I had this rager party. And your dad, I don't know, for some reason, decided to show up at the house and just busted all of us. Oh. Um, and it was like, I couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> um, the, the village 
the village was keeping an eye on me at all times. And, uh, yes. And it's probably best. I think it's because my mom was a praying mom. Yes. And, uh, but I, I, I loved your mom and dad so much. Your dad was the worship pastor. Um, your mom has such a kindness about her and, uh, and those are our indelible imprints that have been etched into my childhood and my memory mm-hmm. um, and my, my, uh, my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I love how you bring that out in the book that place provides that, yep. that, uh, that identity and that skilled mastery and uh, that safety. I think, I think it's, it's beautiful. When, when life hits the fan, you know what I do? I get on a plane and I go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I go, I drive over to Bartlesville and I find your dad. I find your mom. I find Tom and Susan Newman. There's Jim and Pam King. They're different people when I need to remember who I am. I just flew to Nashville uh, two months ago to go spend the day with Tom Newman. He was out there working and he wanted to interview me about the book. And we spent 24 hours together and it got me, it was the best 24 hours of my quarter last year, my fourth quarter. Because it reminded me, he told me stories of my childhood. He told me stories of our parents and and him and Susan and your parents praying as victory was launching. And Lord, we see this dream. Would you give that to us? And and so one of the concepts that I develop in the book, and Jason, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about this, but this concept of social capital. So we live in a world that is just so enamored of financial capital and what are the what are the markets doing today and stocks are up eight percent and what's elon saying we should do and oh bezos is saying this and buffett that like fine we gotta all find a way to pay our bills money matters i'm not i'm not at all diminishing the role of money but what most people don't think about is the the thick layering of social capital so to be able to get on a plane and go see Mark and Linda Turner and have them remind me who I am makes me one of the richest people on the planet. To be able to have people who have watched my parents for 45 years be married and prayed us through. And uh, one time in, in high school, my parents were on the brink. Um, life just sneaks up on all of us. And it was a particularly difficult six months. And one day, Tom Newman just showed up at our house and knocked on the door and and we go, hey, Tom, what are you doing? He said, I was in prayer this morning and I don't know, I don't know why, but I just knew the Holy Spirit told me to give you this. And he hands us an envelope and there's a check for six months of my parents' mortgage. And dude, people who don't have social capital, people who would, who's going to bury you? Who's going to show up at the hospital on your worst day? Who's your 2 a.m. phone call? Yeah. Who's going to carry your kids forward when you're no longer there and remind them who they are? Who's going to carry your story over the decades? If if we have deep pockets, but we don't have social capital, we are poor. And this is why I love going to the third world. This is why I love paying attention to the developing the global south. These, these folks have zero resources and they have deep joy and they care for one another and they the, the village comes together. So I think in America in our moment, we need to recover the gift of place and the social capital that is available to all of us if we would just tap into it. Uh, we have a saying in, in my house, um, a lot of what you're describing fits in this saying. We have a saying that family is the long game. 
it's the idea that there's this generational way in which you think, but you only have access to that to the extent that you've actually experienced some of the things you've experienced and certainly some of the things I've experienced. You can look back to the generations past and I can look back quite a ways. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so much was going off of me while you were talking. Um, my childhood was one in which we got involved in an incredible community that eventually uh, got sideways because of leadership poor leadership some horrible doctrines and became cultish uh, but the the things we experienced in that community were the things that my mom and dad then spent the next 20 years in search of because they were so beautiful um I went to as many schools as there are grades. I met a, I met a girl and married this, the girl that was born and raised in the same home and everybody in town knew her. I loved that. Mm. We've been here 18 years now. I love that. But I had to learn how to get a hold of what you're talking about in the context of, of the nucleus that was my family. And I had that. It was, it was powerful. I could say that place for me wasn't about a location because I lived in a whole lot of them. Mm -hmm. I totally understand. My dad taught me this, wherever you go, act as though that's the place you'll, you'll, yep. you'll be buried. Yep. And that was what he was giving me. He was giving me place in the middle of a move. He was giving me, hey, this is where you put your roots in, act like this is the place that, yep. that you're going to raise your grandkids in. That way you'll engage fully in that place. But yeah. then two years later, we'd pack up. We'd So I had to learn place, uh, what you're talking about, outside of the context of actual physical place. Mm -hmm. And and so there's a few questions I have for, for you in that context. What do you say to the folks that, because we live in a, in a world right now, especially in America, uh, I mean, man, everybody's moving somewhere. Every, yeah. this, is the, this is the problem. There's so much disconnection and there's so much, it's such a fast paced thing. And uh, I think a whole lot of what we're looking at right now, and Derek and I talk about this thing called deconstruction that's happening right now. And I think a whole lot of some of, of what's happening there is connected very much to this thing you're talking about right now. So I would love two, two things to know what motivated you to write this. What, what was the thing that said, I, I see, I'm a writer as well. And, yeah. and when I'm writing, it's a lot of people ask me, they say, man, what do you love about writing? I'm like, I love when it's over. Uh, I love when it's done, you know, because uh, it's so much work. But when you do it, you have to be passionate about what you're writing about because you're going to give a year, two years, or three years, four years of your life yeah. to it because you have to see that you're addressing something that that is that is that you think is worth your time to invest mm -hmm. into. So what drew you to, to, to write this book? Yeah. Uh, and then for those of us that are living in a world where we didn't necessarily I, – I did have – family yeah. giving me that sense of place sure. but a whole lot of people don't even have that yeah and i'm curious how that's connected to what's happening in deconstruction yeah. and see how that's connected to some of the things you're writing about absolutely so first i'll say two things that stand out uh, about where this came from uh, none of us write in a vacuum we all we are made yeah. we're marked in the way that we're marked and we care about the things that we care about based on for me family of origin and my family stories. So my my dad lived in Tulsa for 52 years. He, he couldn't go anywhere where he wasn't walking into a grocery store and someone saying, hey, you officiated my kid's wedding and you buried my grandparents, you know? Yeah. Uh, so just watching the power of place. But my, my mom's parents uh, lived on this farm right up here on the wall in uh, Northwestern Idaho, 700 acres on my grandpa's side, Grandpa Dan, who I'm named after, and then Grandma Wheezy, who turned 90 yesterday, 
uh, her and her twin Lois, Louise and Lois, both turned ninety yesterday. Amazing. They wow. showed up at the same. They showed up at the same restaurant wearing the exact same thing, the same <laughs> sweater, not not even the same colors, the same exact sweater, and they had no communication about it. Nature, nurture, wow. Uh, so Grandma Wheezy's dad was Hieronymus Athanasius Asimakopoulos, <laughs> and he was uh, from Monastraki, Greece. He was the youngest of 10 kids, and when he was 10 years old, his dad died. And his mom took him down right on the, the water there, the Aegean. She took him down, or the Mediterranean portion there. She took him down and put him on a boat. She said, baby, you'll have a better life in America. I love you. Wow. Wow. The other nine stayed back to run the family business. The youngest, she saw a future for him and she kissed him and she never saw him again. And he got on the boat at 12 years old and they stopped along the way, different islands. And he landed at Ellis Island. He had just turned 13 and he got off the boat and he walks up to the immigration counter and they said, what's your name? And he writes it out because he'd never spoken a word of English. Hieronymus Athanasius Asimakopoulos. And essentially the story is they say, that's not going to work here. <laughs> and so they hand him a phone book. This is what they used to do. They would slide a phone book across the table and he flipped to where the most common last name was. And that day he went from Hieronymus Asimakopoulos to Harry Smith. And he got on the railroads, 13 years old. He, he was there. Someone gave him a Bible on the, at the port. Um, 1907, he gets on the railroads, starts learning the language, goes through West Virginia, meets a girl, Margaret Turley. They fall in love, 18 years old, get married, keep working West, land train tracks across the United States. And they get off, he saved all his money. They get off the train in Idaho, uh, right there, Lapway, Idaho, the Nez Perce Indian tribe, where the Snake River meets the Clearwater River. And he said, we stop here. So Hieronymus goes to the Indians, the Nez Perce Indians, and says, I want to buy 2,000 acres. And they said, well, by federal law, we would love to sell you 2,000, but by federal law, we can only sell you 160. And he said, well, you're going to sell me 2,000 acres. So he writes uh, Washington, D.C. And my grandma Wheezy, 90, still has the document signed by Pre Vice President Grover Cleveland saying, the Nez Perce tribe can sell 2,000 acres to Hieronymus Asimakopoulos, oh, a.k.a. Cool. Harry Smith. Yeah. So she lives on that land today. And I would still go out every summer, leave Tulsa, go spend two months out there working the land, cutting sod. Uh, so land and place got in my soul and in my psyche. Yeah, it did. And then I watched my dad and mom live faithfully in Tulsa. So there's the family of origin side. I, I've seen place be powerful and there's not anywhere Wheezy can go without someone saying, Louise Wilson, you and Dan changed my life and you blessed my grandkids and you've been the faithful pillars in this community. So family of origin. But the other thing is being a pastor, I am watching... Just what you said, people don't know who they are and they don't know where they are. And we are the loneliest generation yeah. I, that I, I just can't imagine another society being any lonelier. And I think you see it in our finances. We, we have more money than any society in history and we are medicating ourselves to death with recreational drugs, with alcohol. We're anxious as they come. Uh, so we have to we have to step back and interrogate our moment and say, how's it working out for us? We are living a human experiment. This is the first time in world history that we have the option to do what we are doing. 
And uh, we've got wanderlust. People think the grass is greener. I'm going to run down to Austin. I'm going to run out to LA. I'm going to make meaning in New York. And after 10 years, they paid their bills, but they're broke. Um, And then there's this economic migration. Like we, we make people move. We make people, the markets get unsettled. So the family of origin and then the pastoral front row seat to what our rootlessness is doing to the human condition. Yeah. It just makes me think we've we've got to recover this vow of stability. And your love is revival. Hey guys, I'm interrupting this podcast for just a minute so I can invite you to partner with us by giving to a family story. A family story is a 501, a nonprofit, and it's our ministry. And it's what allows for me to produce this podcast and other regular content. We've been living this faith journey for a long time, but 2014 was when we officially stepped away from the traditional pastoring approach to full-time ministry. It's been fun. This journey has been wild. And this last year was no less faith-inducing with COVID affecting travel and speaking. And it's been good because, hey, we started a podcast. Our passion is to create content catalytic for an encounter with the always good, transforming, reconciling love of our Heavenly Father. And so our heart through this ministry has always been that through speaking, writing, film, and music, we're relentlessly sharing the goodness of our Father, the good news. Your giving goes directly to support this podcast, as well as written content, discipleship content, teaching small group messages, articles that we release weekly, and also the book I'm writing. I'm excited about what I'm chasing down right now. We appreciate all the support, whether it's sharing, writing a review, following us, signing up for our email list, or financially. We just love being on the journey with you. If you want to give to A Family Story, you can go to afamilystory.org, afamilystory.org, and click on the Give button. All right, thanks, guys. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, I just, I was agreeing and I mean, thinking about this in chapter four, you, you talk about honoring your location, uh, the, the membership benefits of place. And I love, I love the Wendell Berry quote. I'm a, I'm a Wendell Berry fan myself, yeah. but he, he said here, I take literally the statement in the gospel of John that God loves the world. Mm-hmm. And um, just hearing some of the things you're saying, it's just, it's reminding me of how important it is to just stay planted. Yes. Um, to, to have that stability, you know, this, the, the scripture in uh, Jeremiah, that if you'll seek the peace and prosperity of the city that you're in, that it will determine your peace and prosperity. Yeah. Uh, such an important concept. And to, to think about, I mean, I'm just Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and what most, you guys will know this because you've spent your life studying the scriptures, but what most people don't realize is the context of that passage is, oh, by the way, you're going to spend 70 years in Babylon. <laughs> like, yeah, exile. Exile. You're not going to be home. And what do you do in exile? He says, plant gardens, marry your kids, start businesses, go for it, seek the peace and the prosperity for if it flourishes, you too will flourish. And so people idealize place and think I've got to find the place that just is my vibe. And it just, you know, I can live my own story here. And these people were told 
to, to live the vow of stability in the, the last place on the planet they wanted to be. And very often we do find ourselves living in exile. We do find ourselves on the move. We aren't where we thought we would be. We're not in Kansas anymore. And still we, we have been called to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place we find ourselves in. So I, I just watch people. It, it, to me, very often it feels like a self-inflicted wound. Right. Like we don't have to bounce like this. Some people do. And for those who do, grace, grace, grace. This is not a book romanticizing place. If you're a military family and every three years you got to do it, I, I understand. God bless you. And there's a way, as you said, Jason, there's a way to live faithfully where you are for the time that you're there. But very often this is a self-inflicted wound and people don't know who they are anymore because they've lost connection to the community and the larger story that they used to inhabit in their, their old place. Well, and, and Daniel, isn't, isn't uh, it true though, that we truly kind of almost are in exile in a way as citizens of the kingdom, you know, we, we are foreigners and sojourners here in this earth. Um, and, and we're planted in these different places to, you know, plant the seeds of the kingdom, the seeds of love and joy and peace and kindness. I mean, I'm just thinking about my own almost 19 years in the exact same neighborhood. And, you know, to be greeted in the cul-de-sac by a kid that I watched grow up from a neighbor, a husband and wife family that we're good friends with, watch both their sons grow up. And one day, one of their sons, you know, now he's, now he's 24 and he meets me in the cul-de-sac and he says, Hey, I can't think of anyone else. I would rather have um, do my wedding ceremony. Would you, would you marry me? We're getting married on the Appalachian trail in, you know, this time. And, mm. and I'm like, I almost started weeping. I'm like, this person does not come to church. They're not a part of a member of our church. Uh, they're just, they're just my neighbor. This to me is what you're talking about, you know, in long obedience in the same direction, which I want you to, I want you to dive into that a little bit because you, you're one of the few people I know that uh, have had a similar experience as Bono um, (laughs) with the privilege of meeting uh, Eugene Peterson and spending time with Eugene Peterson. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, but, but that statement that he makes long obedience in the same direction, it just resonates so powerfully. It does. And to your point, I'll just launch from your story. You want to see the kingdom of God come on the earth as it is in heaven. And you want to see evangelism that is actually relational and beautiful and natural. Be a great neighbor. Just be be the dad who's got popsicles in his freezer in the summer so that the five-year-old, when you moved there, that kid was five. And he was coming over hot and sweaty in the summer, running through your lawn. And you didn't scream at him. You go, hey, bro. You want to, you took care of them. And, and those seeds that you planted for so many years are coming up in a harvest and will come up in a harvest. So the power of place also has implications for evangelism and expansion of the kingdom of God. But Eugene Peterson, when I found him uh, 16 years ago, the bottom had fallen out here at our church. And if you have time for me to just share a, a, a brief snippet. Yeah, yeah, please, please do. We want to, we want you to share that story. So I came here 17 years ago from Tulsa and our church was just kicking butt and taking names. We were 
we were riding high and our pastor was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, 30 million member group. Uh, George W. Bush, in his presidency, Skyped into our pastor's conference and Mel Gibson flew out here on a private jet to release the Passion of the Christ to 3,000 pastors. Guys, the room was intoxicated. It was, it was, I'm saying all this kind of tongue in cheek, but when you're living in the moment, it was, we, look what we are. Mm-hmm. And our senior pastor, pff, caught in a salacious scandal that, I mean, it basically wrote itself on, you know, on the front page of every international news media outlet because it was that, woo. And so we lose our senior pastor. We discover we're $26.5 million in debt overnight. Meanwhile, a global economic recession is happening in 2007. We had to fire 44 people overnight. So lose our senior pastor, fire 44 friends. We're heartbroken, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We get a new senior pastor from Dallas-Fort Worth, Brady Boyd, Gateway Church, man of God. And he's 100 days into the new job. And we're starting to really think maybe we could climb out of this. Maybe the wind of the spirit is shifting to our back. Maybe there's a future. Dr. Jack Hayford's here preaching that morning. It was uh, majesty, worship is majesty. It was amazing, just glorious day. And uh, one o'clock, I'm standing down at the end of our children's hallway. People, you know, parents are getting their kids. Everyone's ready for lunch. Go turn on football. And out of nowhere, you hear the worst sound you could ever imagine, which is bop, 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 bop. A guy comes on our campus with an assault rifle, uh, AR-15, and a thousand rounds of ammunition, a couple handguns strapped to his chest, and he's just spraying bullets everywhere. I run into our pastor's office. There's a shooter on campus, and Jack Hayford's there, and I dive under the desk, and parents are locking themselves in bathrooms, and he, the shooter killed uh, two teenage girls, 16 and 18, in our parking lot, and then ran in, and he's just spraying and a five foot three lady security guard runs toward him, ducks in behind a door and steps out with a handgun, shoots him in the leg and he falls down. And then he blows his brains out in our children's hallway at the check-in counter. Oh my goodness. And so within a year, we lose our senior pastor, discover we're 26 and a half million in debt, fire 44 friends, get a new pastor, double murder, suicide. And we just, we were stunned. We, and, and speaking of the power of place, there weren't a lot of people want to stay around after that. And you, you can't blame them. I was scared to bring my little six month old, my first baby to church the next Sunday. I was scared out of my freaking mind. But somehow, some way, a group of us just kept going. And yeah. I go to a, a Goodwill on Monday morning. I've got the book here. And um, I see this book up on the shelf. And I think, man, contemplative pastor, that's interesting. Um, Eugene H. Peterson. Okay, I think he translated the Message Bible. So I see that there's a 99 cent stamp in it and I buy it, take it home that day, Monday, day off. And I read all 171 pages. I mean, it just, it was like uh, out of body experience. You, We all have like five or 10 of these moments in our lives where it's a line of demarcation that you never recover from. Mm-hmm. And this book was that. For me. So I thought I got to write this guy and just one, at least tell him, thank you. But two, I'm in unthinkable heaviness here and confusion. I don't, I'm 24 years old. I don't know what to do. 
So I write in this letter, Eugene, Daniel, Pastor's Kid, Tulsa, Colorado Springs, Ted Haggard, double murder, suicide. Can you help? And I send it to his publisher because I'm sure I don't know who he is, how old he is, where he lives. And I'm sure the publisher won't get it to him. But I said, dear Nav Press, if you could please send this to Mr. Peterson, I'd be grateful. Well, three weeks later, I go to the mailbox and I pick this up, you know, Eugene Peterson, Lakeside, Montana, 59922. And I was like, what? You know, like your grandparents chicken scratch cursive. And and he says, dear Daniel, yes, I'd be willing to spend a day with you here in Montana, period, but not so fast. Uh, here's the original letter. And he goes on to say, I, I want you to write me a three-page paper on what is church and a three-page paper on what is pastor to see if we even have enough common ground to begin a conversation. And then he says, you are a practicing part of the Americanization of the church that is degrading, if not outright destroying the life of the pastor. Wow. Do you think we and have enough common ground. I love that. I love that Eugene Patterson gave you homework <laughs> before you could visit him. Yeah, and one of the things that I learned from that is anything that's worth it is worth working for. And Eugene knew that if he gave me a cheap yes, it would have it would have crippled my growth. It would have stunted me. Wow. He wanted to make me work. He wanted to see if I was worth my salt, and. You know, Jesus all along the way is going, no, why don't you stay over there? No, why don't you do that? No, go ahead. Go back home. And people press in or they quit. And I think Eugene was trying to sift me. And But if I would fight through, then maybe I'd be worth the conversation. So that began a 10-year back and forth of making 10 trips out to Eugene's house, uh, staying with him and Jan, writing letters, phone calls. um, on his. So Derek, you asked, what you know? Some of the things that I learned about stability through that engagement. I called him on his 82nd birthday. He's almost exactly 50 years older than me. So I said, Eugene, you're 82. How do you feel? And he said, I feel 82. And <laughs> I said, I'm 32. Do you remember 32? And he's right away. He goes, Absolutely, I remember 32. And I said, I have three little kids. And he said, I had three little kids. I said, What do you remember about 32? He said, Two things. First thing I learned at 32 was I'm not a professor. I'm a pastor. Before that, he was translating Greek and Hebrew. He was in the seminaries doing really good work. But he said at 32, I owned in my soul. I was made for the church. I was made to shepherd people for the long haul. That's the first thing he remembered. The second thing about 32 was he said, I then made a commitment to essentially try to die where I was to to not work the system, to not give in to religious careerism, to not live on the circuit, to not apply for larger platforms and more money and work it. I, I determined at 32 years old that I was going to try to serve this one congregation for my entire ministry career. And so as a 32-year-old, that helped reinforce in me that my instincts weren't wrong. I had 10 years in me at New Life at that point, and now I've got another seven And unless the Lord interrupts me, I've told the Lord many times, God, you know how to get me and I know how to hear you and I know how to obey, but I'm not going to live as if my life is going to be unsettled two or three more times. So if you want me to move, you tell me and I'll do it, but I'm going to try to die here unless you interrupt me. So I I think Eugene helped me get that sense of a vow of stability in me. 
you know, I, I read an article that you wrote after his passing, uh, where you, you, I quote you, you said that it took him only 65 years to become an overnight success. And you were, you were addressing the long game again. Yeah. I, I appreciate that he knew to have you steward yeah. uh, a relationship with him that had longevity at its roots, at its core. <laughs> if you will, you know, to have you write a letter. Yeah. And, and that homework, though, was was followed up with, like you said, a, a relationship. He, he was a pastor. Yeah. He actually pastored you, yeah. which wasn't about a pulpit. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. about a message. It wasn't about getting you to learn something. It wasn't about yeah. uh, information. It was actually doing the, the, the thing called relationship, which is I'll lay my life down for you. Yes. And I'm looking for that from you as well. Yes, he did. You know, I grew up in the church. I'm right currently right now. I'm not connected to the Sunday day in day out. Yes. I'm still very much a part of the church deep and wide, but it doesn't look very much like what I grew up with. And a lot of the folks listening are on that journey where they're like, man, I, I can't make it work here. I haven't been able to connect there. And a lot of the reason and that I think is, is part of the reason is that we've had this fast food institutional model of what church looks like as, and we've called it family. Yep. We've, we've put all the right words and language around it to give you all the sense that it's a family, that it is a long game, but there's nothing long game about it. And the problem starts first and foremost with those who are leading it and they're not leading it in a generational way. They're not leading it, laying their lives down. Leadership to them is, yeah. is literally, I, I say it this way. All of us are shepherds or all of us are sheep. If we can't all be shepherds and all be sheep, I don't want to hear the analogy. And I certainly don't want to hear it from a pulpit. Yeah. And I, I'd love for you to speak to that because specifically to the audience that's listening to us, we're looking, the, the world is as hungry yeah. for this thing you're talking about, which is this generational deep. It's yeah. about place, but it's about trust. Because what you're yeah. really describing is trust and trust takes time. Yes. It is, it is, it is earned over time and faithfulness. And man, we could use some some older generations yes. and some younger generations that understood that and were willing to do the hard work yes. so that 65 years later, they could call themselves an overnight success. I'd yes. love for you to just maybe share some of that. Man, that beautiful. It's Jason, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. The, the first book I wrote is called Chasing Wisdom, and it's about recovering the concept of the sages, that in every ancient Near Eastern society, you had the elders at the city gates who had lived long obediences, wow. who had worked, they had learned. They, I say they're skilled in the discipline, the spiritual discipline of trial and error. <laughs> One of the, I mean, there's just certain things that you have to learn over time. <laughs> And so if you had a dispute that you need adjudicated, if you if your neighbor moved the ancient boundary stone and was encroaching on the fields that your great, 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 great grandparents worked for, what did you do? The two of you went to the town square and you submitted yourselves to the sages, the elders at the city gates, and you heard their counsel and you listened to their ruling and the society submitted to their collective wisdom. And because of that, you were able to hug it out. Wow. You were able to put the boundary stone where it belongs because we got everyone's mind on it. We got the wisdom of the, the, the crowd, the wise crowd. And we live in a society that glorifies celebrity and youth and beauty and skinny bodies and tight skin and all of the wrong. We have all the wrong heroes. It, that, that's, that's basically what book number one is about. Gotcha. And helping people reclaim an imagination and a vision for 
the sages and the saints who have logged miles with God and who have lived those faithful lives. So I think every young person deeply desires that. I, I, I think every old person desires to live in that kind of an engagement. But right now we find ourselves separated generationally. Wow. And I think actually the local church can be the place where the, the young submit to the old and honor thy father and mother that it may go well with you and you live a long life on the earth. And the, the old don't die alone and they don't die in seclusion yeah. and they don't die wishing they, they'd spent their last 20 years differently. Like how much do you want to golf? Like, really, <laughs> how many cruises can you take? Like the, the elderly need to give the wisdom that they fought to earn for decades. They yep. need to give it away to the young. And the young, I would say, have the duty to go and to approach and to submit and say, hey, I see something in you that I need. And so if you're listening and you find yourself either an, an, an older person going, what does 65 to 85 need to look like? I'll tell you, we desperately need you now more than ever. Yeah. Your greatest years of influence are ahead of you. you the, the, the American dream tells you you've done your work and now just enjoy. And I'm here to say the kingdom of God says you are coming into your greatest years of influence and strength and wisdom. You have more time than you've ever had. You you likely have some money available and you've got a home that you can bring people into. Live your life giving it away. That's beautiful. And young ones, tell them you need them. So there is that thing um, that's me spitballing on something I heard you bring up. I love that you're writing these books and I love that you're a pastor writing these books because I think there's such a, um, a desire for what you're talking about. You're, you're talking about a family, yes, which is what Jesus walked the planet to reveal God as the father of a family. Mm-hmm. He came to reveal what it looks like to be a child in the family and, and said, this is what the kingdom is. But so many folks that are probably listening right now didn't find it in the institutional model. Yeah. We're all looking for that. And Daniel, just to maybe put it into a little bit of a context with Jason, um, you know, one of the one of the comments I get from a lot of people who listen to this podcast is, does your does your church like does your congregation know that you do this podcast? And that you're <laughs> you're engaging with some of these very difficult questions. Uh, you know, and uh, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it, it, you know, and so that that's kind of a surprise. And the reason it's a surprise is because there there is a group of individuals out there that have been into the institutional church. They've had serious questions and they're looking for answers, but their questions are shunned away. They're not accepted in the in their current status of you know, life where they are. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense of saying, you know, Hey, everybody belongs, everybody's welcome and whatnot. But in reality, there's a sin of certainty in the institutional church that says, you know, we have all the answers and you either conform to these answers that we have, or, you know, you just have to go somewhere else. And, And I think that's kind of what Jason's getting at is, yeah. How do how do we? Yes. I mean, I, I actually take it a step further. I, I would actually say that those who practice such things are engaged in an anti-Christ spirit. They are engaged in something that anti-Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I, I feel like deconstruction yep. in a lot of people 
why I look at it as, you know, and I've kind of been through my own deconstruction as well. I think you and I both have similar upbringings and a very strong word of faith background. And maybe yep. there's, there's some good things, but there's also some stuff we had to unlearn. I just say it's okay to ask the questions and let it all yep. burn down as long as you reveal the cornerstone. Yeah. The building can totally burn down. Mm-hmm. As long as we, we reveal the cornerstone, whose name is Jesus, <laughs> and then we can rebuild from there and do we just we'll re, yeah. we're rebuilding on the right the right thing on Jesus uh, as God in the flesh. I think all three of us grew up probably hearing the judgment begins in the house of God thing. Sure, and I think that's just right. I, I think that's just right, Jesus. Jesus is really concerned not about he's not primarily concerned about the adulterous woman out in the streets and how she's just making Israel go to hell in a handbasket. Jesus is walking into the the house of God that has been it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and it's become a den of robbers and he goes I'm going to look this thing in the eye. I am going to look this thing in the eye. So I think we're living in a moment of reckoning. Mm. I think there is a, a moment of judgment that I think we ought to see as God's mercy. It is just 100%. so merciful of him. Yep. It is so merciful of him to go, look, there are people out there in the streets. The, the lonely need to be set into families. And I said in Psalm 68, this is who I was. God in his holy dwelling is the defender of orphans and widows, and he sets the lonely into families. I have always been about this yep. work. And as long as you're protecting the machine, yeah. mm. you are missing the lonely that are out there. Look who they're, someone feed me a meal. Someone rename so me because I had uh, biological parents who beat the hell out of me. Would you please rename me? Would you please put your hands on me and show me actually that uh, uh, developing a theology of the laying on of hands, the very worst wounds that happen to us are with the perverse laying on of hands. Yeah. Mm. And the church gets to be the place where we crack open the horn of oil and, and we go, look, I, I know you've been wounded by this. And I, I'll go slow enough to earn your trust. And if it takes 10 years for you to trust me to lay hands on you, I've got all the time in the world. Oh man, I will not, I'm, I'm here, baby. And so 10 years later, they go, would you please lay hands on me and speak life over me? And the very thing that wounded them is the very way that God will heal them. Mm. And uh, questions like we need certain things to be torn down and deconstructed and and removed from our souls. I remember N.T. Wright saying one time to someone asking him questions, he goes, hey, tell me the God you don't believe in. And they started talking about it. He goes, yeah, I don't believe in him either. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's okay. It, can we can we make a conversational space? Yeah. Can we make the Church of Jesus not a, 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 a platform to spout our certainties and toe the party line with our little tight theologies and, and, and recover the Psalms of Lament? This last Sunday, I, I stood up in church in real time, the 11 o'clock service. I heard at 1030 that one of our 88-year-old saints who's there every week, Miss Joanne, she wasn't there at 730 in the morning where she normally is. And my mom and two other ladies go, have you talked to Joanne today? Is she here? No, she's not here. Well, they started calling her home, 730. She didn't pick up. And my mom sent Linda, one of the ladies, drive to Joanne's town home gets to the town home. Joanne's in there yelling. She had fallen and broken her hip. Wow. And 
No one knew where she was until the church said, where's Joanne? Right. And, and I stood up in the 11 o'clock service and I said, we got a couple thousand people in this room and some of you would be tempted to go, this is great. Awesome. Fantastic. No. Where's Joanne? Right. Beautiful. Cause Joanne's not here yeah. and we need to find Joanne. And, and we, we saved her life that day because the church wasn't functioning as a machine. It was functioning as the family of God. So can we recover the Psalms of lament? Yeah. Can we make it a conversational space? Yeah. Can we not be so politically partisan that we drive away half of the people who are aching to find the father, yeah. but they can't get past our politics. And can we sign up for the long game? Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I love watching people now as a 17-year pastor at New Life. I have officiated marriages and then dedicated their babies and then baptized their children. And then they call me and say, hey, my great-grandma died. Can you bury her? So I bury great-grandma. And then it's their parents' 50th anniversary. And then this couple's at 25 years. So That's beautiful. I don't want anything to do with a church that doesn't want to live the lifespans with people over the long decades and carry each other across the finish line into our rest. No, thank you. I think if people knew that the church could be that, and it is happening, uh, it's happening. People who are wrestling like you guys, asking questions, we see the, the, the big ticket items. And I used to be a part of a church that was a part of the big ticket items. So I'm not throwing the first stone here, but, but as we kind of move past the, the talking points and the news cycle and we go, wait, there are lots of people asking really good questions who are recovering these ancient practices who are becoming the family of God, that the lost can be set into that family. Like if people knew that that was possible, I think more and more people would be showing up at our churches. I mean, that's the revival that we're that we're all hungry for. I, I want to say two things to what you said, and I, I know we don't have you for much longer. For, first, it is happening, man. It is happening. It is. It's happening with Derek, and it's happening. I want to shout out to some friends up in Western New York. I have a pastor friend up there, Sean Harnish, who's been in a community for so long, and I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. I mean, they're they are in the community, man. Like doing it the long game and. And it's and it's not sexy, yeah. but it's freaking beautiful. Yeah. It's what we're hungry for. It's transformational. What you said, uh, the thing that you said that most impacted me, and this is the the thing that I just thank you for from the bottom of my heart because you're a pastor. Uh, the wound that is inflicted by a pastor is the most damaging wound. Yeah, I think it's one of the birthplaces of of this thing called deconstruction, some of this reactionary thing that's taking place. Absolutely. And I keep looking for the pastors who will say, listen, just by the fact that I carried the title, and I, I, I've carried the title at times in my life, and in those times when someone shared with me the brokenness that's been done to them by the, those authoritarian approaches yeah. to, to God and then through yeah. them to the people, I have stood in their place and apologized and wept and said, that is not a pastor. Mm -hmm. And if we could get pastors who would step into that place and say, listen, that trauma is the, is, is, is not right. And this is who Jesus is. And love is the long game. Family is the long, I'm so grateful for you to do that and to speak to that uh, as a pastor and that you're writing and chasing that down. I'm thankful to you for that. Jason, I, I feel your emotion and it's, it's the pathos of God. It's you, you're, 
the energy that you're carrying right now is the heart of the father who aches for every lowercase f father who has tarnished the capital F father in other people's minds. And, and, and we cannot pastors, if you're listening, we cannot apologize too much. Yeah. We cannot, we cannot tenderize our hearts too much. We cannot get on our knees and wash the feet of the world too much. We, we just, we have so many, uh, we have so many wounded people out there that are not rebellious and trying to burn the thing down. They're just children that have been hurt. That's it. And, and we've got to just say, I'm sorry, please forgive. I wasn't there 20 years ago. Please forgive me. Yeah. I'm going to stand in that place and I'm going to own that, that position, that title. And I, I repent to you on behalf of the father who would never have you think that way about That's him. Um, so it, if, if we could, if we could do that, man, like that, that is the, the magic that is holy ground. And, yeah. um, I don't want anything to do with the church that doesn't know how to repent. And that doesn't know how to say have mercy on me. Oh God. I've sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. And Moses gets kept out of the promised land because he strikes what he should have spoken to. When we get all angsty and mad and we start hitting things that God told us to, to talk to, you, you lose the promised land over crap like that. And so, like, it's so, it channel your, be quiet, slow down. Get your heart right. <laughs> yeah. You are not God. I'm, I'm talking to myself. Like, uh, anyway, forgive me, but I, I could just go all day and I appreciate you showing that you could too. I, I, I could. I know that you've got something coming up, but I'm a singer songwriter. That's my background for, for 15 years. And then, uh, you know, I moved into writing full time. So I can't let you go because I love the brilliance. I love uh, <laughs> some of the stuff that you've been connected to. We've talked a little tacos. I'd love yeah. to hear you just talk a little yeah. bit about some of the musical stuff you've been part of. Yeah, well, my dad was a worship leader at our church growing up. And so I was in the band pit every every service. And he had some of the great musicians of, of a generation there. Uh, Reba McIntyre's drummer for 20 years. Tommy Harden was his drummer. Oral Roberts' kid that you know, was in the maybe center every, so I was sitting up on Tommy's lap watching him and then he'd have me come up and play the altar call at the end of the service. So I, I was just in all the services, always playing. And then uh, Michael Gunger and I uh, went to high school together at Victory in Tulsa and wrote songs and led worship at Victory Christian School and did all this stuff together and then started touring and recording. And so I've played on about 50 albums and uh, written some songs that have been recorded and and sung around the world and in church. But music, man, it, I think, I think uh, one of the great gifts is when a musician becomes a preacher or a musician becomes a, a writer for, for the right. larger body. Because like as a drummer, I walk into a room and a drummer is always thinking, what is the, what is the color? What is the tempo? What is the feel? Yeah. What is the emotion of this? Is it loud? Is it energetic? Is it soft? Is it quiet? Does it need to totally stop? So a drummer's always reading a room and I preach musically. Like when I'm thinking through a text, uh, you put, 
you put John four in front of me and I'm going, what, how many beats per minute is this? You know, is Jesus, at, is Jesus at 135 or is this a, is this a 72 ballad? Is this a, awesome. you know, it helps you kind of yeah. get into the feel of the text. And so uh, music is, is in me and it, and it, I'm always thinking and writing musically, <laughs> lyrically, uh, there's a certain cadence that that you want to find, and so thank you for even asking me that question because there are very few people who who will ask me that question. But oh, um, music matters, and and of course it matters, especially when you're younger. I mean, it matters to me. But I got my kids are now studios in the homes, and yeah, bro. and uh, talk for hours on that. I it's you know the same. You know, as a communicator, I learned to write first in song lyrics. You know, so you learn you have to say a lot with a little. That's um, certainly has played a huge role in what I do now. But one of the things about this, I called Michael Gunger when I was early twenties, twenty five probably, and we just had Lillian. And I said, Michael, I was out every weekend, and I said, I don't. You need to call someone who wants to be in fifteen passenger vans and sleep in hotels and live in green rooms. And 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 it really actually it confirmed for me because I walked into all these green rooms and what I realized is I'm getting everyone's one hundred percent every time. Right. And this is an illusion. This is not reality. This is an illusion. And by the way, it means that we can't have intimacy and closeness because it's built on a false yeah. interaction. Yeah. Yeah. I basically what I learned in that moment is I want to be at home. That's good. I want to be with my congregation. I want to be with my family. How old were you? I was 25. Wow. You learned it young. That's beautiful. I didn't want to live on the road. I wanted to be, I wanted to build something with the same people in the same place that could actually accrue and have this compounding interest of meaning. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, Hey man, uh, Eric, I'll let you cut, close us out, man, with a few questions and, and man, it's been an honor and a privilege to connect with you. It really has. Been. Great, Jason. Yeah, Daniel, absolutely. I uh, want to encourage everybody that's listening to go buy your book. Um, once again, it's the power of place. Choosing Stability in a Ruthless Age. I think it will, uh, I mean, I think this book is going to be a marker for the things that we're <laughs> longing for in our heart, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I have a similar experience, no musical background, but like, you know, seven years of being on the road, international travel in the name of ministry mm-hmm. and wow. um, basically leaving my wife and daughter at home you know, to be a single mom raising her daughter while I'm, you know, 1.8 million miles on American airlines, uh, in a, in a six year, seven year time span. And, uh, you know, I remember I had that encounter of somebody pointing their finger in my face and saying, Derek, you're a pastor. This isn't who you are. That's good though. And, um, and man, it just hit me like a lightning bolt. And, and I would agree a hundred percent. We're all sheep. And we're all shepherds because if what you're doing isn't being done with the heart of the good shepherd, you know, we, we get this kind of weird dualism, like, well, the fivefold ministry, you know, the prophet, he's kind of the mean one. <laughs> what for, well, why? Because why? Because he doesn't have the heart of the shepherd. Oh, right. okay. Well then I don't want anything to do with that. That's good, man. Um, and Jason's Jason's in the middle of writing a book that I think is going to be, uh, dialing into this, it's calling called leaving and finding Jesus, mm-hmm. and it's basically leaving the Jesus that people 
think God is mm-hmm. the Zeus like yeah. yeah. caricature of God and bringing in that incarnational mm-hmm. who Jesus really is. And he absolutely represents the father. And in, in your book, you bring this out in, in the chapter on theology of friendship. Yeah. You quote Peterson again in saying just that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I think we are the, we are that incarnational feet, hands, eyes, mouth of Jesus that's moving into the neighborhood and people are going to find the real Jesus as a result of, of that. Not, and it's not going to happen through, you know, uh, the, the four walls of the church, but I also haven't given up on the local church. I think, yeah, amen. you know, we live in the South, man, Sunday mornings at 10 AM, <laughs> yeah. your butt's going to be in church somewhere. <laughs> so let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. but let's embrace the incarnational other six days of the week yes. being Jesus to, to the world. Yeah. That's very good. Let it be. Yeah. Let it be Lord from Derek's lips. That's to it. your ears. <laughs> hey man. Tell us, uh, tell us where we can find you, and uh, all of your all your social media uh, digits, uh, numbers, yeah. all that stuff. So Twitter and Instagram are both at Mr. Daniel Grothy. So M R D A N I E L G R O T H E, and then DanielGrothy.com. It's a blog that I rarely write on, but there's a bunch that's collected there. So and just shoot me an email, dgrothy at newlifechurch.org. And uh, you'll make them do some homework, of course, and then and then yeah, I was gonna say, I'll write some paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Hey, Daniel, before we let you go, um, we got to talk tacos. So I understand you actually ate tacos before this podcast, before joining us today, which is just like total dedication. Way to go, man! Yeah, bravo! I had to pay off. It just felt wrong to eat, you know, peanut butter and jelly or biscuits and gravy or ham sandwich. It's like, if we're going to do this, let's do this. That's it. That's it. So, so descri- describe your your favorite taco to us or your favorite taco experience. We want to hear it. My grandma, who's 90, Grandma Wheezy, her twin sister, Lois, who turned 90. Lois would make the best. It's been years since she's made them, but she would put the tortilla... Uh, it, so it was a soft tortilla to start, but she would put it on the skillet and get some oil going on it and harden it up. And it would kind of swell up like this and then shrink back down. And then she, I don't know how she did it, but she would figure out a way to harden it just to the right amount, just the right texture. And then she would fill it up with, with some great beef that my grandma Wheezy raised out on their ranch. And then, uh, grandma would make amazing guacamole and, uh, some really nice salsa and then sprinkle it with cheese. So my grandma and my great aunt working together in the kitchen. So to me, it what it didn't even just have to be about the way it tasted though. It was excellent. It was two of the most iconic women in my life working together, showing me their love and feeding a whole tribe of 50 of us. So that to me would be frozen in my mind as, taco holy ground (laughs) love it beautiful (laughs) beautiful well uh that that fits right in line with uh everything else you've said man going to grandma's tacos Uh, (laughs) right it's about place love it well listen man Mm -hmm. honored to have you on this podcast i think there's a lot of i think this is going to bless a lot of folks encourage a lot of folks and we do recommend man checking out your Mm -hmm. book and uh 
finding you on Twitter and connecting with you. Hey, and Jason, just so you know, it's 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 on the down low, but I'm working on getting Daniel here to nice. speak at River Church. Um, and and we're gonna have Andy Squires nice. probably come in and be our come guest on, worship leader. Is uh, Daniel's a big Andy Very Squires cool. fan, so uh, I'll let everybody Do know it. when that's happening. Keep your eyes open in 2022 yeah. for Daniel Grothy and Andy Squires at River Church. Let it be. Andy's awesome. I was, I've been on staff with Andy, and he's a cool dude for sure. That'll be a really good time. Fun guy. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. Bless you, man. Derek, I love you, man. I love your whole crew, and I, I thank God for your mark on my life. So thanks for having me on today. Oh, man. Love you too, Daniel. Really do. Hey guys, we're so glad that you are joining us for Rethinking God with Tacos. Uh, you can find me, Derek Turner, at rivercharlotte.com. That's my church. And I'm on all the social medias yes. as Pastor Derek T. D-E-R-E-K, Pastor Derek T. Yeah, and uh, he's a Twitter savant. you got to follow him on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Jason Clark is, uh, and you can find all of these podcasts, including season one, on all of the platforms. You can also go to afamilystory.org, and everything's there. If you sign up for our mailing list, we send out a weekly email that has uh, articles, podcast information, and uh, we also let you know about new books coming out or events that we're uh, connected to so yeah. uh, like share retweet and uh and man if you could write a review it, it actually does something for the rankings it, it, it does it more yeah available, so but a five-star review of course <laughs> yes you know if you can't write a five-star review or something <laughs> like just don't even write don't, a review. don't worry don't worry about it yeah yeah it's kind of like if you can't say something nice don't say anything, don't say at, anything all. at all i, I like that and yeah. then apply that to this <laughs> podcast definitely that's my motto that's i like what i do i love it. <laughs> so love you guys appreciate you coming on the ride with us god bless